Welcome back to seeing life from a different angle. Today is podcast number 23, I believe. And today I thought I would talk about the concept of sin. I know it's not a topic many people like to talk about, but I think it's an important one for us to consider, and I'll tell you why. I think we have taken the idea of sin and either done one of two things with it. We have either expanded it to punish ourselves on a perpetual basis, or we have eliminated it as if to say there's no reason for us to even consider whether or not we have done something wrong. So where does the idea come from? You know, as I was thinking about this before the podcast today, because truth be told, I don't plan these podcasts. I allow myself to be open to whatever it is that the Holy Spirit brings to me. And so, you know, I let myself speak um, or let him speak through me. And so, you know, in thinking about it today, or just allowing myself to think about it, the idea of original sin came to my mind. And it's a fascinating thing to consider, you know, in the, in, in the Catholic faith, for instance, and I am Catholic, I've been all my life. In the Catholic faith, you know, the child needs to be baptized because it is believed that the child has an original sin, the sin that Adam and Eve had as human beings for choosing themselves above God and from separating themselves from God. And I think it is something that we have to really consider as to whether or not that really holds true. I think if Jesus were here to say to us now, are we sinners when we are born? I think the answer would have to be no. I think the answer would better be that the purpose of baptism is not to alleviate that original sin because as we've talked about, you know, there is a period of time when an infant is born and there is that beautiful connection, that perfect triangulated connection between the child's mother, the child and God. And in that moment, that child is not a sinner. That child is completely open to love and being loved. You know, and as a byproduct, can we say that this person sins if we define sin as something that follows us that we don't have any control over, we could say that. The question is, is that a valid definition of sin? Is it really valid for us to say that a child is born carrying the weight of history on his or her shoulders? Or is it better to say that the purpose of baptism is a unification? Instead of a renunciation or an elimination of sin, is it not a unification? A unification with the body of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean that the child is separated from God. As a matter of fact, I believe as long as a child stays in that wide open reality, that God is an everyday part of their existence. You know, we think about the beauty, the imagination, the creativity, even in youth, how much exists to the mind of the developing infant. You know, I mean, we don't know, and we'll probably never know unless science takes us to a place that it doesn't presently exist. But we can, I think, say that the child's creativity is a byproduct of being able to see beyond what it is we ordinarily see before they slip into this myopic reality that the world demands of them. They live in the space of a wide open reality. And in that space, there is love 
there is joy, there is happiness. I recently wrote in my blog about that same concept is that we, you know, have had these experiences before and we spend our whole lives trying to recreate them in these watered down, sadly, oftentimes very, very unhealthy ways. But in that space in infancy, when the child psychologically is nothing but an id and the child is connected with God, connected with their caregiver, mother or father or both, if they're blessed, you know, during that period of time, the child is not a sinner because sin requires an act of will. There's an act that says, okay, you know, I am tempted to do something. I am tempted to cause pain to another. I am tempted to hurt another. I am tempted to turn my back on God. In that period of time, the child's will is not to do those things. If a child has a will at all, we can say that that will is directed toward a continued state of being, a continued opportunity to stay in that wide open reality. A child doesn't want to sink into that myopic reality that the world pushes it into. No, the child wants to stay where they are. Why wouldn't we? You know, when we think about it, the child inside of all of us, buried under all these layers of clothing that the world puts on us to help us cope with the world, and I put cope in quotation marks, because what a sad and inhumane thing for us to just feel like we have to cope with the things that are going on around us or cope with the pain inside of us. Instead, as I've talked about before, I think it's more important for us to consider whether or not we want to return, not cope, but return to that core of each of us, you know, by knocking down the fences that surround us, by eliminating that myopic reality and seeing that the world operates differently than we have been told that it operates, that there is something more. Why wouldn't we want to return to that place where love really exists, where happiness exists, where joy exists? But I think to return to the topic of sin, how can we say that an infant is a sinful being when they live in that beautiful space, that space of love and joy and happiness with God. And I don't think that we can. So I think in many ways, and this certainly challenges a lot of the conceptions of probably some of my listeners, certainly, you know, some of the church, but I think it would be healthier for us to consider looking at this from a different angle. Not to say that baptism is useless, no, I think quite the contrary. I think baptism at whatever age is an important piece of the relationship that each of us has with other members of the church and most importantly with Christ, because I think it really is an opportunity to say, I am joining the body of Christ. I am joining the church, I'm becoming a part of this church. Now, at this point, the child doesn't have any choice. Of course, the parents make this choice, but the parents are saying, I am wanting this child to be baptized. I am wanting this child to be a part of the church. And I think when we consider the idea of sin and taking it one step further, you know, we have mentioned the notion that it becomes a question of will and whether or not I will something. You know, I was reading this morning, or actually Mary was reading to me this morning. Mary is my wife, for those of you who are new to this podcast. And she was reading our morning readings together. And one of the things that um, St. Alphonsus Liguoria talked about was the question of sin and the question of will. And he said, temptation will occur. 
It's just a matter of whether or not we yield to that temptation or do we allow ourselves to recognize the temptation and make a choice to not yield to that temptation. That's a sticky word choice. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I have contested elsewhere and I would continue to contest at some level that we really don't have a free will. And I know that that's going to be something that's controversial in its own sense, but I believe instead that how we are raised and the experiences of our life determine a great deal about the status quo of our life, the path we will follow. And we will follow this path because this is what it is that to the ego makes sense. Now, when we think about it, you know, the idea of an id and an ego are maybe foreign concepts to some. So if I can stop for one second, step back and address those two specific psychological structures. The id is oftentimes, I think, sadly labeled as the not just the primitive piece of who we are, but the darker piece of who we are. Fascinating idea to consider why it would be that something, some part of us that seeks to keep us alive, that seeks to keep us functioning, that seeks to keep our mind you know, present and capable of dealing with the world around us is considered dark. Because, you know, in there, there is no negative will. There is only the desire to keep going, the desire to continue to be what it is that we are, to be in a place, especially early on in life, of that wide open reality, that place of love and joy and happiness. And I apologize for being redundant about those things, but I think it's an important consideration. We cannot move past the notion that that is where the it exists and what it is that's going on at that period of time. The ego, on the other hand, comes about when the id realizes this is the real world and the real world that is impinging upon me, that is putting me in this incredibly uncomfortable and untenable state is something that I can't bear. And so I have to give up a piece of myself and I have to develop this ego that is there to protect me from this world. Therein lies the beginning of the end, so to speak, of our wide open reality. You know, the earlier that we have to develop an ego in order to function, the earlier we have recognized that there are conflicts going on within that child's psyche and the child's world. And the external world is affecting the internal world. And so that ego has to develop because we sadly live in the real world. But does it have to develop to such a degree and in such unhealthy ways? And no, I don't believe that it does. But therein lies the notion of, you know, if I am making a choice, again, in quotation marks, if I'm making a choice, then it is dictated by what it is that my ego believes is the best or perhaps the only option for me in terms of how to function or how to live or how to deal with life. So if we can look at the idea of sin, I think we can pin it, for want of a better word, on the ego and the ego's ability to function within the world, or sometimes inability to function within the world. And so I think when we consider the concept of will, I think we run into the notion that really what's occurring is that the child has learned over time in coping with the world and having to deal with this world that is not always kind, is not always caring, is not always nurturing, is oftentimes abandoning and hurtful, that in dealing with this world, 
we have to seek out any way we can to attain some gratification, to attain some level of relief. Elsewhere, I have talked about the notion that there are three different types of gratification. There is artificial pleasure that comes about at a very sad and I would say psychologically primitive level for all of us. That level that says, okay, well, this is quick, this is easy, this is something that will make me feel better now. And whether it is sex or pornography or even reading, if it is designed to take us away from what it is that's going on around us, including engaging with other people. Anything that we can use for that, drugs, alcohol, any number of other things, is an artificial pleasure. And when we look at these unhealthy ways, we can see in those ways an increased propensity towards what we would call sinful behavior. Because these things are doing harm to us, and they may even be doing harm to other people. And therein lies the idea of sin, because we're not turning toward God, we're turning our back away from God. We're focusing on what it is that will ease me in the moment. As Bishop Robert Barron talks about in Word on Fire, he says, you know, it becomes not a, not a, a theological drama, but an ego drama. And the theodrama is one where we are engaging with God, and it's the connection there. But an ego drama is one where we are about protecting ourselves. It's about self-preservation. It's not about love. It's about self-sustaining. You know, when we think about it, society would encourage us every day, almost every minute of every day, you watch TV, you watch commercials on TV, you read magazines, you read books. You know, you, you hear these talk shows and these individuals will talk all about self-care, self-sustaining. You know, you are most important. You have to take care of yourself. We have become, sadly, so focused on that narcissistic tendency that, you know, and the gratification of our own pleasures that we have turned our back on God. Because God only exists in the third type of, of pleasure in our relationships with others that is actual pleasure you know whereas we have the artificial pleasures that seem to be gratifying for us in the moment we you know you sit down with your friends and you drink three or four or five or six beers whatever the case might be you know every beer isn't a connection with these other people even the first sip of that beer is not a connection with these other people if the focus is on easing one's tension but the second type of gratification is fantasized gratification. And these fantasized gratifications are a lot of what it is that society encourages as well. Again, going back to taking care of yourself, where you've bred a society of narcissists, as I said, where individuals are about the need, desperate need, to take care of themselves and to focus on what it is they need and believing at the same time that everybody wants them to have these things and those that don't want them to have these things are just terrible and horrible people. But both of these forms of gratification, while unhealthy psychologically, can also be considered unhealthy spiritually because they drive us away from a moral life which, which is about those levels of connection with other people, not only just taking care of ourselves and not hurting others, 
but really being connected to our brothers, our sisters. And that can only be attained, as I say, when we are in a state of actual pleasure. Because in actual pleasure, we are truly connected in the best ways that we can in human existence with others in our lives in healthy ways. And in many ways, it is kind of a recapitulation, a reliving, if you will, of that wide open reality that we experienced in infancy. Now you think about the times in your life when you have been connected to other people. Oftentimes in these moments of connection, you're going to hear things that your ego will rebel against. You're going to hear this person say something that you don't agree with. You're going to hear this person say something about you or act in ways toward you that make you feel tense, make you feel uncomfortable. In an actual healthy relationship, those types of things need to be considered as about that other person, but also to consider what effect are they having upon me and why are they having this effect upon me? It's so easy to say, okay, got to go pack up our stuff and leave for one of a better way to put it, to turn our back on what it is that is presented to us. It is so much harder to sit there with it, to not necessarily quote unquote accept it, but to sit with it and allow it to enter our minds and to try to process why is it that this person sees me in this particular way. You know, a while back, I talked about the notion of a seven foot fence that surrounds each of us. And there is that occasion or those occasions in life. And for most of us, I think there are many of these occasions when metaphorically speaking, somebody in a different yard and they're fenced in reality throws a ball into our yard. And this metaphorical ball is something we've never experienced before. And so it makes us incredibly uncomfortable. We want to avoid it. We act as if it isn't there. Or we pick it up and look at it and say, this doesn't belong to me and throw it out of the yard. We call the other and the other side of the fence crazy because they don't exist in our reality. We call them crazy because they're trying to make us uncomfortable. You know, we act in ways that would keep ourselves distant from these individuals. And yet the sad reality of it is, is that in their myopic reality and in our myopic reality, it is all part of the wide open reality. We just live in these fenced in spaces. And I think to return to the topic of sin, it's something for us to consider, you know, is it sinful in its own way to turn our back on our neighbor? To say, okay, well, they're crazy or they don't belong in my life or I want nothing to do with them. I believe the answer to that is yes. And I think the reason is, is because every sin turns us away from God. And I think it is important not to chastise ourselves for whether or not we turn away, but instead to consider, why do I turn away? Actions speak louder than words, but motivation speaks loudest of all. I can commit any number of acts. I can act in ways that are horrible and sinful, but stop long enough to consider this. Is it motivated by something? Yes, everything we do is motivated by something. And so when we consider what is it that motivated me to act in this particular way? You know, I was reading the other day a story about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in this book and found this book to be really fascinating, The Last Hours of Christ. And, you know, there, 
there are period, and I've always wondered about this piece, there's a period of time when Christ goes into the garden and he says to Peter and to James and John, please stay awake with me. You know, he's only, as far as I can imagine, a few feet away, and they fall asleep. And he comes back to them, and he addresses Peter, and he addresses him in a way to say, you know, why are you asleep? Don't you know that I need you? You know, in that moment, it is such an uncomfortable thought and experience that I get. Metaphorically speaking, it's kind of like that pain in my chest, that discomfort there. That says, okay, wow, he did something really wrong. But stop long enough to consider this. What was his motivation? What is it that Peter, James, and John were experiencing in those moments? And the author of this book, Father Gorman, I believe is his name, you know, he kind of addresses that, which is though this is a painful moment for these individuals. They realize and have been told that Jesus is going to die. He's going to suffer. You know, how would you feel knowing that the person you love more than life itself is going to die, is going to suffer. You know, what do we experience? We've all had losses in our lives. And I would hazard a guess to say that most of us, without generalizing, but most of us have experienced anger, frustration, doubt, all the great stages of grief as we try to negotiate our way out of this circumstance. Lots of prayer, lots of begging, lots of pleading, you know, any number of attempts for miracle cures, all these other types of things. But here you have these three men who love Jesus more than life itself, and they fall asleep. They fall asleep while the person they love most is sobbing, is in agony, and knows that his fate is sealed, and that within a few short hours he will be gone. He will never see these people in this bodily form again in this way. You know, but when we stop, and if we only stop there, you know, we're inclined to look at this and say, what a, what a sad state of being. How sad, even how sinful of these people not to do what Jesus asked them to do. To turn their back, metaphorically speaking, on him in these moments. But if we stop long enough to consider this, what is it that their egos were experiencing? As human beings, we cannot escape our ego. We cannot say that the ego doesn't exist. We can't say that it's no longer useful. We can't say, as many pop psychologists might say, or even some religious may say, you know, we need to eliminate the ego. We can't. It's foolish. There's no way to eliminate the ego. There is, however, a way to understand it. There is, however, a way to make it healthier. You know, the way to make it healthier is to examine it, to try to understand it. And so when we have a moment where we have done something that we might consider sinful and something that turns us away from the moral life or that turns us away from God and recognition, the recognition of our need to maintain the moral laws of not harming others, taking care of ourselves so that we can be in the healthiest way spiritually and relationally with others and recognizing that we are all a part of the body of God and we are all brothers and sisters. If we can, when we turn our backs on these things, you know, we need to stop long enough to ask ourselves one further question, which is, what is it that my ego was experiencing in these moments that made me want to make this choice? And then to begin to look at and examine other ways, other healthier ways, other possibilities. 
And so when we return to that very idea of sin, I think that it is, there is no original sin to speak of, except when man starts to do harm to others. And when man starts to do harm to others, that's when sin begins to exist in this world. When we turn our back on God, we're doing harm to someone, ourselves. And so it's important for us to consider that and to consider the motive behind it. If we stop and just say, I'm a sinner, I'm a terrible person, there's no redemption for me, then we are lost. But if we stop long enough to say, yes, I have sinned, I am a sinner, I've done these things, but I want to look at the reasons why I do these things, we have a chance. Be well. <laughs>